Hello fellow time travelers, Tony Witt here. You're going to notice when listening to this episode that we had some audio problems, none of which had to do with our guest, and all of which had to do with our Discord server. For some reason, even though it recorded everything perfectly last time we had a guest on, this time it decided that it would just sometimes drop the audio out at very key moments, even when either Allison or I were talking. So there are going to be some jumps in the audio that you'll probably notice. You'll probably hear me coming in and recording a few syllables here and there that got cut out in the instances where cutting the audio just doesn't make any sense. And I have to apologize both to our guest and to you, dear listeners, for the quality of this episode. All I can say is it will get better and we will make sure that this doesn't happen again next time we use Discord for our recording purposes. Thank you very much for your patience. Hope you enjoyed the episode anyway. Do you like movies? Do you like TV? Do you like discussing the temporal effects of non-linear time travel and its implication on the plot of the movie Looper? Uh, okay. Do you enjoy the latest in pop culture news? Do you enjoy superheroes? Do you enjoy discussing the relative merits of superpowers and their effects on human physiology? Anyways, if you enjoy these things, even a small amount, you'll love the Rusted Robot Podcast. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, YouTube, and make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Subscribe, so you never miss an episode. TheRustedRobot.Podbean.com Hello, fellow time travelers. I'm Wendy Padbury, and you're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Enjoy your travels. Hello fellow time travelers and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the ever-growing task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations. My name is Tony Whit, and today we have an ever-growing three-person discussion panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979, that would be me. There's also our semi-novice fan, who's seen little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've done for this podcast. And this time around, it's the wise and witty Allison Fitch Seyfried. Hello, Allison. Good evening from the tropics. Good. Yes, indeed. It's a little cold here in Chicago tonight. And finally, we have a very special guest, another expert on the program who hosts and produces the Fiction Paradox podcast, and that would be Skip Benninghouse. Hello, Skip. Good evening, one and all. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. Terrific. Before we get started with the actual um, discussion of the book for tonight, just wanted to ask you, what exactly is the Fiction Paradox podcast for those uh, who don't know, and what book are you on, and where can we find you? Well, Fiction Paradox, the podcast we're in, myself and my two co-hosts, Brooke and Sasha, uh, read and review the BBC Eighth Doctor Adventure novels. And right now, we're on, I want to say, like the 10th book, uh, Dreamstone Moon, will be the next one. Oh yeah, Paul, Paul Leonard, is that right? That's correct. Oh yeah, I remember that book quite well. Uh-huh. And we can be found at 
I don't know how you pronounce it. Is it Spreaker or Sprecher? It's S-P-R-E-A-K-E-R.com slash show slash fiction dash paradox. Terrific. Excellent. We do not have our own domain yet. It's the sign of a well-educated person to speak words you don't know the pronunciation of because you're reading. So, now well. the whole internet knows I don't know how to pronounce it. <laughs> well, at any rate, we're going to put that link in the description of this episode when we post it on uh, SoundCloud for our listeners. So we'll definitely make sure that we get those going your way and... Hopefully they will enjoy your podcast as much as ours because we've I've listened to a couple episodes and it's a great podcast. And uh, yeah, looking forward to seeing what you have to uh, say about uh, the next book. Uh-huh, thank you. All right. So before we get to talking about the book for tonight, please remember our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash DWTargetBC. We cannot produce this podcast without your help and patronage. Depending on the amount you give per month, you will receive, among other possible goodies, a randomly chosen BBC book, not a Target book, since we know that our president has bought them all up to throw to the next set of hurricane survivors. I thought you were going to say you were going to try to build a wall out of them. Well, yeah, well, think of it, I wouldn't have passed them. As a gift for supporting us, just to say thank you for being willing to help us out stay on the virtual air. As usual, we would like to thank our regular patrons, Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, and Toby Bengelsdorf. Thanks, guys. And we're also welcoming our new patrons still, Jay Barry and the Video Junkyard Podcast. Woohoo! Thank you, everyone. And, of course, we have our discussion group where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts and best faults on Goodreads. You'll find us at tinyurl.com forward slash Y7KMASPR. In fact, we expect you to. We continue now with one of the more interesting... <laughs> it's like quite a dad moment. In fact, we... You too. Well, yes. be very disappointed. I'm surprised you're just now commenting <laughs> on this. I've been saying... I don't okay. listen to the podcast, Tony. I know, but you listen to me recording this every... Oh, never mind. All right, we continue now the seeds of death. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who, The Seeds of Death, adapted by Terrence Dix from the Brian Hale script that aired from 12569-3169, published by Target Books in July 1986. As of this recording in February of 2019, this title is currently out of print, 149 pages. There we go. Um, you may have noticed that we're knee-deep in Dix this month. Oh, are we ever. So to speak. Normally we have a break between Dix, but <laughs> yes. not, not this time. This time we're getting three Dix in a row. This is the second book in a row of his that we've read, and the next one will be his two. I'm afraid I'll be out sick. Oh, well, With what yet? I don't know. <laughs> I'm sure he will. And that's probably why Dalton's not here tonight either. He's like, too many dicks. Because of the fact we record these discussions in story order, this book puts us in a rather odd position. We're literally one book away from the last book that Dix would ever write for Target before we've even read his first one. Hmm. That's coming up in a few months, in fact. In fact, it's not even a few months. I think it's next month. And yet we're also reading the earliest episode in story order that he himself had a hand in writing. Although the script is credited to Brian Hales, who created the Ice Warriors and who'd go on to write two more stories with them, and the novelization of the first one, which we've already read, before his untimely death, Dix did an uncredited rewrite of episodes three through six in his new role as script editor. There were a couple of reasons this happened, literally. One, Dix didn't like the original ending, which unfortunately we know little to nothing about. And two, Jamie was originally going to be replaced by a new companion named Nick. But since Fraser Hines decided to stay, there was no longer a need to have that character in the story. Now, the reason why Hales didn't do that rewrite is because he'd already written a full script for the production team already, one called The Lords of the Red Planet, 
that they didn't like, and they asked him to replace it with Seeds of Death. The fact that he didn't know whether the male companion would be Nick or Jamie added to the stress, and it was finally decided that Nick would rewrite the last four episodes, his first actual writing for the show, hmm. for which he was uncredited. Is there any surviving relic of Nick in here in a different character, or is there just no, no Nick at all? No, okay. and I honestly think that what was going to happen was Nick would, would have been introduced later. Something like that. Bringing back the Ice Warriors in a sense, not only had they been hugely popular, their costumes have been so expensive that bringing them back would allow the team to have an excuse for the expenditure. Two other notes. You may have noticed the Doctor spends a lot of time unconscious, and that's, of course, Troutons taking a week off for vacay. The other note is about the setting of the story. Eldred originally had a line saying one of his rockets was the first to land on the moon, but the production team figured that NASA would probably get there first, and sure enough, they did. <laughs> but given that the story of the moon base, novelized as the Cybermen, already takes place in the 21st century, in 2020, in fact, next year, this story must play, take place sometime after that. Lance Parkinson's book, A History of the Universe, though, does a weird reversal. It dates this story in the 2040s. It says Wheel in Space, which is Zoe's first story, takes place in 2068. And the moon base is in 2070. But if that's true, wouldn't Zoe know about TMAT? Yeah. Mm. A little crazy. Yeah. <laughs> a little bit crazy. Um, before I ask Skip to read the back cover for us, I want to ask two questions. Uh, one is to you, Skip. Um, what was your first experience of this book and of this story? Um, this is the first time I've read the book. Really? Yep. Oh. And I watched the... TV episodes a week-ish prior to reading the book. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's generally the way I do it, too. Uh, Allison and Dalton have generally have not seen the episodes, so they haven't seen Supposedly the, uh... our strength. Yes. <laughs> and it's a, it's a good strength, too. And I'm going to ask Allison, since Dalton is not here, but he is going to uh, pre-record something and send it to us later. Were you surprised at the return of the Ice Warriors since they were redacted from the cover? I actually felt overwhelming guilt that I knew I should remember who the Ice Warriors are and do not at all. Maybe I missed <laughs> that book or maybe they failed to make an impression on me, but I oh, do wow. not remember cold weather lizards. Really? So wow. what, can you remind me a bit more of how they appear? Um, uh, the year 3000, kind of. Earth is going through a second Ice Age. They're trying to keep the Ice Age back with some sort of machine. Mm. And they find a, oh yeah, remember that okay. now. because yes. I remember you liked that book. Yes, you were very taken by Hale's but writing style. Apparently, the the Ice Warriors themselves went in one year and out the that's in one year. Yeah, in right. an orifice and out of an yeah, orifice. Lizards do well. Skip, since you are our guest of honor, we're going to ask you to do us a favor, <laughs> which is if you would read the back cover for us. Alrighty, I will read it from the fine copy of the paperback I have here. Returning to Earth in the 21st century, the Doctor, Jamie, and Zoe immediately find themselves caught in the midst of a crisis. TMAT, a form of instantaneous transportation essential to the smooth running of life on Earth, is going disastrously wrong. The Doctor discovers that the TMAT base on the moon has been taken over by a group of ice warriors led by the villainous Slar. Their home, a desolate and dying planet, the Martian invaders see Earth as a world ripe for conquest. But before they can colonize Earth, they must dramatically alter its atmosphere. And so they unleash the seeds of death. 
Very good. Thank I you. I appreciate that Skip pronounces both A's. Slaughter. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think they're meant to be pronounced. Yes. But, um, and as usual, the back cover completely gives the plot away, <laughs> which is why it was redacted. So, yeah. Skip, we're going to start with you. We normally ask before you started reading it, what you thought you were getting yourself into, all of that mess. So what were your first impressions of this one? Um, it had been a while since I've read a Terrence Dick's Target novelization. Mm-hmm. And I guess it kind of lived up to all my expectations in the sense of being um, like very direct. You know, one plot thing follows the other and, you know, one causes the next one, that kind of thing. There's very little, I don't know, like adornment. Right, exactly. He's very script to page. Yep, very, just kind of bare, the bare essentials to get everything across. And, and of course, having watched the TV show, you know, a week beforehand, you know, I kept seeing scenes from the TV series. Right, exactly. Yeah, it is a pretty faithful reproduction of the televised version, even down to what I think is probably my favorite scene when the doctor is running up and down corridors and suddenly he finds in this corridor that's just mirrors and there are endless images of the doctor going back and forth. <laughs> and for no apparent reason, except that they could do it. And Dix actually refers to that three times. In the- it, it is. It, it does evoke it effectively. Yeah. We yeah. haven't seen it. But- Absolutely. And what about you, Al? Your first impressions? Well, as usual, when I haven't seen the episode, always, because I've never seen the episode beforehand, the creature design is probably much better. Mm-hmm. In this case, it definitely was because you had redacted the cover. <laughs> right. So I, I, I imagine much lifelike lizards. Yeah, well, we won't get the lifelike lizard creatures until the new series, and then I'll be rendered in CGI. But, uh, yeah, we won't get to see what's in that carapace for a good, uh, what, 40 years more. I'm okay with that, based on what I read. I generally enjoy a good sort of futuristic logistics story. Mm-hmm. Now, here's a way they're now running the world or the universe, etc. And I thought at first it was kind of an interesting idea that they had a program of beaming supplies and people all over the world. And he had kind of an interesting uh, concept here with uh, to play with, with the idea that people are no longer interested and curious about space travel. Mm-hmm. Um, as a result of, I guess you would call it domestic travel right. in this concept. I mean, in, in particular context here. Um, so I actually did like that at first, but then, you know, we've had so many bases of run up and down yeah. that it just very quickly became so much of what we've read in the last 20 or 30 stories. Yeah. And this season has been very good about not base under siege stories. To, so to have another, yeah. I was a little annoyed at the non-cleverness of the system. It's the, the world is now on the verge of starvation because we haven't been able to send food in 25 yes, minutes. exactly. And some other, other things, wonderfully, magnificently efficient system of the future, not actually as clever as might otherwise be kind of wowing and gratifying. Mm-hmm, true. And so, my, well, it would be one thing if, you know, it would be one thing if we were talking about this failure going on for days or weeks. But as far as I can tell, it's just hours, and it's hard to tell with this book because so much happens in those hours. And um, Skip, I don't know if you uh, caught that too. I posted on Facebook the other day, does anyone notice how weirdly time dilates in the story? <laughs> yeah, this is, I, it's one of those where you're like, wow, that rocket travels really, really fast. You know, it's it was like, you know, a couple miles away from the moon within five minutes, it seemed like. <laughs> exactly. I could get if that was sort of the end of rocket travel right before they move next uh, technological bump to the next thing. It's 
The moon is not very far away. In it's base. three days away, given uh, current rocket technology, which is probably why they had three days of food makes sense, except they seem to get there in under 30 minutes. I, I was, uh, first of all, amused by Jamie's um, sort of bravado of, ah, three Gs, whatever, whatever. <laughs> I haven't experienced before, but I'm sure I'll be fine. That kind of knocks backwards. But then he interprets mission control asking if he's still alive as a woman nagging him. <laughs> <laughs> indictment or just a lack of fairness on dick's part well it's kind of in keeping with jamie's character i would think yeah he's not exactly the most progressive guy shall we say so if what um what sort of things do you want to talk about with this book the way Dix does the um the regulars um how well he uh represents the plot what you notice more from reading the book that you didn't actually notice when you were watching it like i noticed he corrected it. There, there are a couple things. Like one thing he corrected that I noticed in the TV show was, you know, when the T-Mac goes out, um, I don't remember which person it is says, you know, if, you know, if we don't get this going, you know, thousands of people will starve or something along those lines. And Dix did correct that. <laughs> and, you know, millions of people <laughs> will starve or whatever. Only the hypoglycemics will starve. <laughs> yes. Hey, that's not funny. I was hypoglycemic earlier. <laughs> oh, God. But the weird, the weird <laughs> thing about that, though. We're sorry, is, Skip. Well, yes. Yeah, that's no problem. But the weird thing about that, though, is that even even you would have you would have supplies set by if if something like that happened. You wouldn't immediately be ordering food and having it come directly via TMAT to your house unless that's how the society works now. They just don't keep anything in storage. And that sounds just, that really does sound like putting one's eggs in the same basket. Mm-hmm. In many ways, was a little ahead of its time, though, because mm-hmm. we didn't really start to get that until the late 90s, where stores and restaurants may not have a backstory within a day's dock. And that, that's true. And we now have Peapod, and we are currently eating pizza for Rob so, yeah, we're not too far removed from that. We could live without stored food. It's just, it sounds like nobody in the world stores food. It's just insane, really, when you think about it. Another thing that I appreciate about the book was how, you know, like every TMAT platform that you saw was, a, you know, like four feet by four feet. <laughs> and you, know, you kind of wonder how exactly they're feeding millions of people yes. by TMAT. You know, how, like exactly how much are you sending at a time? I wondered if I was just misunderstanding the technology. Yeah, yeah. maybe they could beam from a sort of almost indeterminately large area to another one, and just the control panel they or might. the control devices foot by four well, foot. But... They might have something like the transporters of next generation, where you have a larger platform. And that's how they um, transfer it. And we just never see those because we've got the uh, phone booth models that are just for individual transport. But even those seem kind of, uh, it doesn't exactly seem very high tech, does it? Now, did Dix create any of this or he was just rewriting it? He's rewriting it. So the idea of TMAT and rocketry going way of all fresh and the Ice Warriors coming back was all hails. But I guess something happened. Is ending. I know that at one point Gia Kelly was supposed to be mind controlled by the Ice Warriors. I'm like, mind control? When have they ever done that? They've never done I did expect her to have a much larger part in the end. She did. Okay. Because she was introduced as the major non-regular character and then fizzled out at the end. 
Oh, that one. I think uh, Gia Kelly's kind of awesome. Uh, what do you think of Gia Kelly? Uh, I liked her. And I, th- I thought it was really neat how she and Zoe were kind of the like the lead technical people, mm-hmm. you know, for much of the story. Oh, yeah. yeah. Outside of the doctor. So you had two female characters, you know, kind of leading the charge to fix things and get things done. Mm-hmm. And that almost never happens in 60s Who. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, the thing that I thought was interesting was that when he introduces her, Terrence Dix talks about even in the 21st century, women had to work that much harder to get ahead mm-hmm. as like boy howdy he's definitely describing things as they are in the 21st century yeah <laughs> insightful that i've come to expect from him yeah yeah i mean terrence sticks well that's the weird thing about him he's very old-fashioned in some ways but he's also progressive in that way that men in 60s and 70s britain were progressive which is a very different animal than these days so there's still some really hidebound attitudes towards, you know, gays and lesbians, obviously, and things of that nature. But when it comes to Gia Kelly, he thinks she's just as awesome as the rest of us do. Yeah, she, I, I really liked her character. Did you notice a drop-off, though? Because I noticed exactly where Dick started writing. Um, Gia Kelly is up front and center then from episodes th- through six, or at least the chapters that represent episodes three through six she's suddenly a little less competent than before and there's a lot less um attention paid to her yeah she does drop off i was saying i would be more front and center yeah towards the end sorry go ahead i was gonna say i think she's still what's the word you know a type a personality you know she's still i think remained like like a leader oh yeah throughout you're very headstrong throughout the whole story exactly And something that I appreciate is that Dix adds all of the stuff about the intra-office politics that go on behind the scenes. (laughs) And you don't get any of that on screen. You get the idea that people enjoy working together and they're just joshing each other or what have you. But it's like, no, 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 no. This is every bit as cutthroat as any sort of Silicon Valley outfit would be. Yeah. I have to say, though, Fushim is every bit as pathetic in the novel as he is. Oh, dear God, yes. Yeah, and in the TV series, just, I, as far as, like, the least aspect of the book I liked least was him. <laughs> yeah, understandably. <laughs> I do find that Dix is at least willing to look at Fushim and say, okay, he can't be completely pathetic. We've got to give him a character arc. We've got to give him a moment to realize what he's done and redeem himself, and then actually be brave in that redemption. I don't remember that bravery in his last scene in the televised version, but it sure as hell comes across on the page. Yeah, he just he gets a little redemption at the end, but I, it doesn't make up for all the sniveling, groveling <laughs> that he does, you know, in the first nine-tenths of the book. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah. I thought Dix was trying to work with something interesting, maybe on Fushim, where Fushim sees him... <sighs> reacts completely differently to potential theoretical death off screen or off planet to him mm-hmm. versus people dying in front of him. He's willing to let millions die mm-hmm. to save his own hide when they will die in a place not visible and obvious and close to him. Oh. But he's very upset when the doctor he thinks the doctors die. He's very mm-hmm. upset when Zoe is threatened. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was an interesting character idea that he would not really have the capacity or the will to conceptualize earth dying 
Yeah. But he did understand people in the room possibly died. Oh, yeah. And he, as he witnesses so many of them doing it, it, it kind of goes back a little bit to the Cybermen and the Tenth Planet, basically saying, well, when Polly says, well, those people in the rocket are going to die, don't you care? And the Cybermen say, no, why should I care? You you have people dying all over your planet thousands by the minute, and you don't care about them. And it's like, yeah, humans cannot conceptualize. Right, it's just proximity, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And he comes across as so pathetic because he seems like, yeah, he's trying to save his own skin. And he is, but there is that moment where he decides, okay, I, I'm not getting out of this alive. It doesn't matter. I've I've been the accomplice to all of this, and I need to do something about it. On the page, we see that through Slar's eyes. We see it through non-human eyes. We don't see it through the eyes of another uh, person. But yeah, it's a Slar. I love the name Slar. <laughs> it's a good one. <laughs> yeah, they know how to name them on Mars, don't they? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I believe this was the first story where there was like, like um, an ice warrior commander, right? Yes. Um, got a whole and, new look and every, or a different look, I should say. Yeah. Um, and well, Slar looks a little different than I think the uh, main Ice Warrior character. Yeah, he does. That's absolutely right. Um, that there's fan lore that he's supposed to be an Ice Lord, but he's never called that on screen. That's definitely after the fact. So you've got the, uh, <laughs> You've got the fleet leader who's literally bejeweled. It's the mm-hmm. most ridiculous thing. It's like a 14 year old girl has been at him with these <laughs> little jewel gems all over his head. <laughs> so they do love their uh they do love their bejeweled on Mars, definitely. It's also looking forward to uh later Ice War research where they do the more of the hissing sound. You know, the more of the more of the sibilance. Mm-hmm. Here it's more like a belabored breathing as opposed to letting Yes. Kind of stuff. So it's interesting to see an early incarnation of a well, you know, fairly well-known villain and True. how they change over the years. Yeah, and I noticed that Terrence Dix doesn't do it later. What they sometimes do with them, especially, well, uh, what I remember from the Virgin New Adventure is that they would kind of draw out the S's every time. Right. So that, <coughs> pardon me isn't happening nearly as much here. I know that Big Finish, when they do the Ice Warriors, tend to avoid that if they can, unless they're talking about the foot troops. Mm -hmm. They're the ones that whisper. Stop! You must be destroyed. You you got no orders to kill me. Your leader will want to speak to me. Humans are our enemies. But I can be useful to you, like Fusion. Your leader will be angry if you kill me. I'm a genius. One thing I noticed was brought to mind the scene, I think, where they're going to, uh, the Slar is commanding Fushim to team at the doctor out somewhere out in space. Right. And how does it go again? Midway between the Earth and the Moon, I think. Is that what it was? Yeah. Just, just, and I, and I, I guess I kind of question, like, well, can you, you know, for some reason, the Moon, which I didn't quite understand, the Moon has to act as an intermediary for all TMAT transmissions. Mm-hmm. That it always has to be like a. Um, a landing pad and it's just like well how can you 
put someone out into space. Yeah. You know, they, they build up the whole, the way TMAT works, gives you the background, then it's all of a sudden, yeah. oh, we're going to put them into space. I did that. I didn't quite understand how that was supposed to work. Oh, I hadn't even noticed that either. See, listeners, I'm not the only one who nitpicks like this. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. It's it's not like a Star Trek transporter where if you just have a set of coordinates, you can send somebody. You actually have to have a unit to break down the person and the unit to build them back up. But, yeah, that's that really does kind of stand out all of a sudden because we've got this entire song and dance about oh we've got to get control back from the moon because it's controlling the whole system mm-hmm. yet that it yeah it does seem like everybody's put their eggs in one basket yeah it just seemed like there were certain elements that were there because they were convenient essentially oh, oh god yeah they yeah. tell us how fearsome the ice warriors are, how dangerous but they're not very good at fighting no <laughs> they're not um which is Chasing people down, killing them efficiently. That will change in later works of fiction, but it doesn't really change that much on TV. If if they don't have their sonic guns, or if they're not in close proximity to you, forget it. (laughs) In the Matt Smith story, where we finally see one of them them out of the carapace, you realize, oh, okay, they're they're just as deadly as Daleks. uh, They kind of need the protection of that suit. If they're up against somebody who's an equal, but if they're up against, say, Russians in the 1980s, <laughs> they can just let loose. <laughs> kind of crazy. Yeah, just, I, was saying, I, I, I really enjoy the costumes, and I love their, I love their Lego man hands and everything. <laughs> <laughs> Which is even more bizarre when you see what their claws actually look like. I guess <laughs> this would be the most efficient design, but if you're imagining human hands, it's just weird. Yeah, like when they're carrying the carrying the seeds of death over to the team at like it just you, i wonder how many times they had to uh do that in the tv show it just looked like it was going to fall out of their hand at any minute oh, you know yeah one little slip it was over <laughs> well at least it wasn't at least it wasn't some sort of breakable pod or seed it was just um i should probably tell allison what was on screen how they realized, realized the pods they're balloons. Oh, <laughs> I, I thought he felt effective sense with that. What are they going to beam over? He well, they'll beam over troops or bombs or something like mm-hmm. that. And I thought there was effective suspense of what are they going to send over? Oh, we'll get these pods. Well, what are the pods? What do they do? And he mm-hmm. didn't belabor it too much, but mm-hmm. you know, built up some interest in what it would be. And even after we saw them deployed, we didn't at first understand what they might be doing. Well, I was wondering how you reacted to that because knowing the title of Seeds of Death. Probably thinking, where's the seeds? Where's the death? Well, will they? Will they? Well, will they be like you know embryos? They be yeah. hatching new warriors, or Ooh. will they? Or will it be something? You know, will they? Oh no, that's instead of just beaming uh, ice warriors, will they just be populating the planet in in that way? Oh, yeah. um, so okay. they, they obviously had a clever plan, different than than I expected. Well, let's unpack that clever plan, shall we? Because. Uh... Or certainly he he built up that incredibly smart, and they're not worried about um, Earth military at all because they've got it all figured out. That's I was true. curious about what it was going to be. Yeah, and I did find it interesting. The military never gets involved, never called the 21st century version of the unit. seem to find it really to be part of their purview or anything no, to get out of it's like this internal thing. 
<laughs> yeah, we're not going to try to do anything. Instead, they get it's the... It's a civil uh, matter. <laughs> it's a civil matter. Yeah, most bizarre thing. But I do want to unpack that plan because Dix does something with this book that I think is remarkable. He keeps you from noticing just how ridiculously stupid the whole thing is by amping up all of the uh, all of the tension. There's a whole lot of tension, and this book, compared to even to the uh, televised version, I would say, Skip, um, clicks by very quickly, mm-hmm. wouldn't you say? It's a six-parter, and it's one of the few six-parters six I know that doesn't feel terribly padded. No, I, I, I agree with you. It doesn't feel padded. It, it, it zips along, and scenes are generally fairly short. Mm-hmm. So you and can, on the page, can... even more so. Yeah, I think it's six parts, and I think it, what there's what fifteen chapters, which comes out to you know less than ten pages a chapter. Yeah, exactly. I did find myself wondering what they would have been new episodes on screen. I guess there's a lot of going back and forth. I wasn't always sure who was where at any particular time, but I didn't care enough to be that <laughs> troubled by it. But I mean, you know, it's not that padded. It does yeah. zip along. What what were they doing for six episodes? I, I think you would be annoyed by the television version, Allison, because you have said that you really hate it when they're running up and down corridors, and um, episode three is almost... Like I said, I was delighted when there were ladders. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) But episode three is essentially the Doctor running up and down corridors. That's all it is. At least the the mirror funhouse corridor that that gives them something different to to work with, and the idea that he was managing to evade the Ice Warriors by confusing them. And it's got a wonderful score, too. Music for this story is just really interesting compared to the stories around it but of course that's not on the page we can only go with what's here that plan (laughs) let's talk about it shall we um skip what what did you think of the ice warriors cunning plan to suffocate a few people at a time and have them say "Ooh, we need to turn on the air conditioning so that it makes fungus i was wondering like you know what like what time of year it is they plan on putting you know Putting the seed, seeds down on Earth, like in the fall, <laughs> or you know, was it going to be like April and then get really hot all of a sudden and you know, rain? <laughs> exactly. They do well. Eldred does have a line about that. Does he? Does he indicate that the weather is like completely controlled? That it, yeah. Like, okay. Yeah, and he he does say, however, that all of the places that the uh, ice warriors have been summoning pods to and their their knowledge of earth geography is remarkable because they know all the all the names of the cities um are all in the northern hemisphere and where winter is going on at that point so they're not sending them anywhere where it's hot because of course the pods wouldn't be able to survive doesn't that mean that they would only be changing the oxygen for half of the atmosphere and the southern hemisphere would still belong to you know people who could take the heat i don't know i guess i I guess they were kind of i think the book does a slightly better job of getting across like how quickly the seeds like reproduce yes yeah so i guess the idea would be that yes they would just reproduce so quickly they would the northern hemisphere would suck all the oxygen out of everything, including the southern hemisphere. That was the, that's what I got out of it. Yeah, I agree, and I think that was a that's a nice reference in part to H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds, because when the Martians in that book invade, they send out a blight called the Red Weed, 
which is supposed to essentially, well, you can't call it terraforming. It would be because of uh, erisiforming the planet, I guess, by using this vegetation that is native to Mars and changes the atmosphere to be suitable. So there is that, but when you see it on screen, Allison, I'm going to have to tell you what it looks like on screen. Probably. And it burst her bubble, as it were. Oh, God. Yeah, there we go. It's soap suds. It's all soap suds. It's foam. I I suspect it as much. (laughs) It's hilarious to watch on the televised version. Uh, On the page, it's terrifying. But on screen, it's like, oh, bubble bath. Yay. I was surprised when it was described as fungus. Because it seemed obviously like it was bubble duds from yeah. what they were describing it. Well, you have to fake it till you make it, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you're going to see bubbles, but it's actually fungus. And it looks like they're having a good old time just playing in the bubbles, but actually no, everybody's dying. Everybody's dying. <laughs> yeah. I was gonna say by by this point in the in the show's history, like how much of you know how alien has a doctor been portrayed up until this point? In as far as having respiratory bypass and just being able to you know having an anatomy which can resist things that humans can't. I was curious about that too. Yeah, um, as far as I can tell, what Dix is doing there, especially since this is one of the books that refers to him as a time lord, is. It's throwing it out there just briefly so that those of us who know the later stories and know that the doctor has a respiratory bypass system that allows him to essentially keep breathing when there's poisonous gas or no oxygen at all, um, and is just kind of inserting that in our minds without actually coming out and saying, luckily, the doctor bypass system saved him, which was not with the original uh, writers had in mind. They just wanted to give Trout a vacation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's a good thing that we do have that later. Reference to the fact that he is a Time Lord. That's why he survives this. And so- that's why he's able to go out into the uh, bubble bath and survive it longer than a human would. Does that come into the canon between the episode being written and the novelization being written? Yes, actually. Well spotted. Yeah. So Dix is making... Almost an oblique reference, because by just saying he's Time Lord, but not saying respiratory bypass system, those of us reading this in 1986 writing it will remember 1976 Pyramids of Mars, is that right? Um, And when it was actually introduced. So it it is pretty clever. Dix can be very clever when he uh, introduces these continuity without actually introducing them. Oh, sorry about that. <coughs> I got all choked up there. <laughs> <laughs> For the wrong reason. You're, you're visualizing fungal spores too much. And <laughs> I think I am. Hypochondriac. Probably so. <laughs> the plan is to give all of Earth legionnaires. <laughs> it takes a few years to well, kill them off. It does go through the air conditioning. Yeah. System, it does. So maybe it kind of turned up the heat in the regular HVAC, and that was enough to off them? Is that yeah. what she did? Okay. Yeah. Is it like a propane fire? Well, here's the thing. Yeah, the vapor. Well, that's the <laughs> thing. Dix doesn't actually tell you how hot it's gotten. And he only mentions it once, but on screen you actually see the temperature going up. And in Celsius, that control room goes up to 120 Fahrenheit hmm. by the time the ice warriors start falling over. And you think, shouldn't we see characters sweating or something like that? But They're that calm. 
they're calm. Yeah, they're probably sweating already because they're afraid they're going to die and they don't realize it that it's because of the heat. But I think that's I think that's one of the minor problems in the story and one of the ones that Dick manages to cover up. But so, <laughs> what else do we want to talk about? There was I know like in in the TV series or the TV episodes, you know, every valve and everything is labeled in big letters. Mm-hmm. And there's a camera, but in the book, there's also, I think they cut it down to like, you know, one thing in big, bold letters. I can't remember what mm-hmm. it was, but I just kind of chuckled to myself. Oh, it, you know, oh, I know what you're talking about. It's the funniest moment in the book, and it doesn't occur on screen. It's when they're in weather control, and they're trying to hide out from the ice warrior. So they're in a room where the door isn't shut yet. Jamie goes over to a switch and says, is this it? And the lights go out. <laughs> and the doctor says, no, Jamie, that's not it. Oh, here. It's this It's this switch right here, the one that's labeled shut. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just hilarious of where it comes in the story. You rarely get that sort of um, comedy. And um, you don't get that sort of comedy on screen very often, but it's nice to have it there. Yeah, a little, little comic relief and... Because it was actually a pretty tense scene. Oh God, yeah, yeah, yeah. The um, the ice warriors are nothing to be sneezed at, despite the fact that they, you know, lumber along and they're pretty easily taken out if you happen to have a space heater handy. But uh, <laughs> but I did want to address something <clears throat> that um, I'd forgotten about this story. I really had. The doctor undergoes a massive transformation in the story that isn't going to be sustained by the Troughton Doctor, but it is going to follow him for the rest of his incarnations. This is really the first time we get not only a doctor who is willing to do this heroic self-sacrifice all on his own, but also be just absolutely bloodthirsty about killing off the enemies. When it comes to Daleks and Cybermen, it's different because they've lost their humanity already and therefore fair game. But the Ice Warriors, as we find out later, are essentially another sentient species. They're not monsters at all. Um, Skip, how did you did you note that difference and that transformation? How did you feel about it? I noted it, and but actually, this subject came up in our podcast a few books ago. Oh, really? And as Sasha Sasha brought it up, or I basically I made a comment like I forget which book it was exactly, but well, the doctor is like unusually violent. And Sasha immediately piped up and said, "Well, it's not completely out of character," and referred to me referred me to a YouTube video, which is just a what do you call it, like a supercut of the doctor shooting other right. creatures, <laughs> you know, so it's like, it's happened, you know, it's not like super duper common, I guess you'd say, but it's happened more times than you really think, you know, especially having seen the news, you know, the new series and everything. It's like, yeah, he really did go. He really, you know, did wield the gun or other weapon, you know, moderately frequently, I guess in the classic That's series, true. but it, yeah, it's still, it didn't happen all the time. So it was still kind of weird to, see it happen anyway especially just i don't know for me it just trout and you know the tramp and you know the whole thing with the door oh it's the button that's labeled shut you know then he get has the (laughs) you know the jury rigged heat lamp things and it's kind of bloodthirsty (laughs) yeah oh yeah absolutely um in fact there's a line where dick says 
he hovered over it to make sure it was dead. And I was like, holy shit. (laughs) But yeah, it's exactly, we're used to that now, but I I really want to get Allison's take on this too, because you've been reading these in story work. And you have seen, you know, the new series, and you've seen the Doctor Bloodthirsty in, in the future. But was it surprising to you to see the Travel Doctor, of all people, suddenly doing this like Shiva Destroyer of Worlds bit? I've been so desensitized by modern violent entertainment, I didn't even know. <laughs> really? so, I I did not. But then again, I have played many times about how Mountain Doctor isn't very well characterized in most of the novels. Read the last one was better than okay. most. Um, so I don't feel like I have a characterization of him. So basically nothing mm-hmm. he does interests or surprises oh, in many okay. ways. That, that's a bit harsh. That's not entirely true. But no, I did not immediately that it was wildly out of character. Right. And I Maybe think I the, should have. It, it's not out of character, but it is new at this point. I'm, I'm guessing, I'm guessing, Skip, that if you watch that supercut, you're probably going to get fewer of those clips of the Hart Troutoners shooting aliens and a lot more of Lee and Baker and Davison and Baker. And oh, yeah, it. definitely. But it's also, I think, you know, having the benefit of hindsight here in 2019, and I think the novels, as in the non-target novels, do a, emphasize more that, he isn't human, you know what I mean? He is an alien. Mm-hmm. And and if you, you know, it's 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 to me it's not really out of character for him to not be human, you know, or to not right. always act in accordance with our morals. Yeah. So it's you know, it's I, you can kind of excuse it, I guess, in a certain sense cuz you know, he really he's not human. Exactly. Now, as far as the um the book that you were reading, the uh, Eighth Doctor novels, I know that he had lost his memory for a while there. Has it come back by this point? But he hasn't that... lost it yet. Oh, <laughs> shit. Sorry. Oh, I, I, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm well aware that he loses, I think, a couple times over the course of the... Yeah, McGann is probably one of the most absent in the doctors <laughs> when it comes down to constantly losing his mind. But um, I do remember now vividly that there was a subtext in all of those original novels all the way up until, I think, the 16th or 17th where the Eighth Doctor was, his sudden violent tendencies were marked upon, and I can't remember, ever ended up doing anything with it. So I just thought, oh, okay, this is just something that happens with the Doctors every once in a while. become dyspeptic and kill. Yes, we do indeed. And I also think it's kind of funny how the, you know, these uh, jerry-rigged weapons, these solar energy weapons that they come up with, I like how they, you know, they they reduce the ice warriors like piles of ashes. You know, they, they, you can reduce an ice warrior to this, you know, fairly small pile of ashes. But yet, if you're actually standing just three feet away, you're not, you know, not in the direct line of fire, but you, you you're completely unscathed. Yeah, you're not going to get a sunburn. <laughs> yeah, these very directed uh, energy weapons, hyper directed. Yeah, exactly. In fact, they're they're more efficient than phasers in some ways because village at all. Well. You, you have to think. These are probably very, very clever people. I mean, Phipps is very clever until he ironically has a hysterical fit and a female character has to talk about 
I thought that was interesting. Yeah, total reversal, especially you know for that time. Yeah, because we'd expect, we'd almost expect, if it were any other companion, but Zoe, that she'd be the one screaming and running away, and she's the one who doesn't exactly slip slap Phipps across the face, but does say, "Okay, stop, breathe." You're having a panic attack. It's perfectly normal, but I need you to focus. But it's in character. It's very much. Yeah, I was wondering, Allison, how do you feel about this book? Uh, Pretty good overall for the last couple. I've actually liked Dix and characterized her. It's internally consistent with Gittison's personality. And I like what he does with Jamie. Oh, really? How so? Because you've called him the noble savage up to this point. Well, the last book I liked how Jamie and Zoe were characterized. And that was a Dix novel hello listeners for a full minute there the whole recording just kind of goes kerblooey and allison gets completely cut off what she's saying there is that dix's characterization of jamie is a lot more consistent of a companion who really is out of place and doesn't seem to have a lot to do, but is trying very hard to make himself appear to be helpful and all of that, and that she appreciated that. She then went on to ask whether or not the episode itself made a big deal over the fact that it was completely ridiculous for them to take Jamie on the rocket rather than Gia Kelly. Um, yes. Okay. It, because it really doesn't make any sense. Um, it ends up working out well enough for them in the end, I think, to have him along. But you're right. They probably would have gotten a little more accomplished had Gia Kelly start. How does Eldred's Space Museum compare to the other Space <laughs> Museum that we have seen? Yeah, on Sky. I'm guessing not, not well. Um... I'm, I'm gonna... This sounds pretty impressive. Well, I'm gonna defer to Skip on that one, because, um... Long, long-time listeners of this podcast will remember how much we really just did not, not like, like the, the Space, Space Museum. Museum. <laughs> no. So, I'm sure all of us were going on. Franchise. Well, yeah. How would you say they compare, Skip? I, it's been ages since I've read or seen the Space Museum. And then the audio completely cuts out on me as I'm talking about how, even though the original Space Museum was huge, Eldred's Space Museum is essentially just one little room that's later going to double for mission control for their little rocket launch. Eldred's little setup, (laughs) and for some reason, it has this weird auto-started film about TMAT in it. And you would think, why? Uh, he he's dead set against TMAT, so why would he have this film talking about why TMAT is so much better than rocketry? <laughs> he's and, preoccupied with how terrible it is. That's how I took it. I guess it, that might be it. In fact, that might be it because it does seem like an introductory film to TMAT, and probably if he's touring the museum with guests, he's probably saying, "See, that's the beginning of the end, right there." But for a minor character, it had a pleasant little characterization for him. You know, get out your trespassers. <laughs> oh, goodness, show us how it works. Well, if you insist. All right, I'll show you how it works. Show off the thing. It's an actually nice poignant moment for him, wherein he, he's so touched by the lo- the rocket launch, he realizes he's, of course, not ever going to be on a rocket yeah. launch again. That was a nice moment. Exactly. Dix is very good at emphasizing those So things. where was the rocket? How big was it? Because yeah. it's just kind of like, you know, when... 
They just launch it from your living room museum. <laughs> I guess because like it was supposedly like hidden away somewhere, you know, yeah. out of the prying eyes of uh, the authorities. Mm-hmm. A rocket. <laughs> yeah, and you have well, you have to wonder what the authorities would. Really- well, from what Radner says, they've had him under observation this whole time, just to make sure he doesn't like you know blow up the neighbors or something <laughs> like. Apparently, you're right. He got an entire rocket in a silo right beside the museum, somehow <laughs> covered by a dome, because as as you remember the model shot from the uh, televised um, episode, Skip, it's right there. <laughs> the launching pad's right there by the museum. They move all of their equipment to the museum and do the countdown there, and it's the most bizarre thing if you even stop and think about it for two seconds. And they hand wave it, with the line, oh, we did that in record time. Yeah, just in 15 minutes, they can do the control room. Right, exactly. So you're saying the museum set is not impressive? No, not yeah. really. Eldred says, oh, we don't get many visitors. Well, I can see why. There's not much to look at. Well, I don't know how they got the control room going so quickly, because really the the control room in the, you know, on the TV, I don't even remember if they mentioned it in the TV show that the, his museum it was converted to the control room or not. But the control control room is... Not quite a bit bigger, but to me, it was noticeably larger than the museum. Right. So they right. knocked some walls and, out and had to you know, rerun cable in two minutes flat. <laughs> exactly. Unless Aldred had that all set up already, though. Oh, God. And God. Did, was I the only one who just thought Eldred is, was super callous? <laughs> you know, because, yes. you know, aside from the fact of not quite understanding how 15 minutes without T-Mat team, leads to world famine exactly. You know, for thousands of people going hungry. He's okay. Yeah, he just, he's just, you know. Uh, serves them right. Rawr. He's just so resistant. Yeah, he is. Well, I, I, I'd like, my flippant answer is that he's such a rational man that he's looking at those claims and saying, oh, come on, no. No one's going to starve because T-Mat's going out. You're just, you're just making up stories. This is fake news. But part of me is also thinking he is so obsessed and wrapped up in his dream, bitter about how TMAT has taken down rocketry and every other form of transport, apparently, because he gets all excited about the car from the other museum, that he really can't see the forest for the trees. It's like, so? He's like, Fushum. He's so? Thousands? Millions? are gonna? It doesn't matter. I've been right. TMAT is the end of the world. Screw you and get your dogs off my lawn. I guess it did mark a, you know, it was at least different from, I think, what you'd normally hear from a character be like, oh, here's my chance to for fame and glory, that kind of thing. Or, yeah. I will save the world. Right. I, to, I, I will, will save the world laugh. and be famous as opposed to <laughs> screw you guys. Well, I think Dix also gives us a lot more Radner's character and makes it clear that even though he's almost charming on screen, he's not charming in the book. He's just as much a climber in this hey, organization as everybody else. Oh, he, he, on screen, the actor is very good at it. So when he goes and says, oh, Daniel, you don't want to help us, you don't get that sense of betrayal, whereas Dix really pounds that home that Radner let... Oh, Jesus. Uh, yes, thank you, Allison. <laughs> as soon as I... <laughs> Dix really pounds home the idea <laughs> that Radner has betrayed Eldred to go and work for Team Out. 
Oh, take that smirk <laughs> off your face. Are you 12? <laughs> anyway. <Maybe> next month. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> oh, Lord. Okay, so what else? What else do we have to say? I feel we've plumbed the depth. Skip, is there anything you particularly still want to say about the book that you found impressive, not so impressive? Usually around this time, we go into our notes and we find all of those passages and lines that sound particularly good. Particularly good. Obviously because Patrick Trout was on vacation for like a week or however long. So there's that stretch where we, he's unconscious. I guess I just I, I like that his interplay with Jamie, generally speaking, and I and I enjoyed mm-hmm. those moments here. Yeah, like there's a bit more of them here. In fact, yeah, they they play well off each other. Yeah, extremely, yeah. Uh, very much so. And I do notice that that bit with the um, the lights going out and the that's brand new, but also he kind of punches up the scenes that they do have together. And uh, one of my favorites is from chapter 11, when the Ice Warrior is going over because the Doctor's coming too, and we get, the Doctor was just thinking indignantly this was a particularly rotten way to wake up when Jamie leaped out of hiding and smashed a bar across <laughs> the Ice Warrior. It's like, that is brilliant. And the description of Gregson. Gregson's a great character, but I have to wonder what, what he's really doing except just to pad out the scene a little bit. But Dick's description of him almost justifies his being. Gregson did everything briskly, since he was the type who confused activity with efficiency. The thing was, in his view, to be seen to be doing something. It didn't much matter what. He was a slight, fussy, balding man, and those who were forced to work with him said he could turn a difficulty into a disaster in record time. Yeah, basically, you know, Gia Kelly, she comes across the best as um, of all the characters that work for the comp- for the TMAT company or the TMAT div- division of the government that runs it or whatever. You know, mm-hmm. but, yeah. like I said, Dix develops the the office politics, you know, behind yeah. the scenes. And I, th- I thought she came off the best out of anyone. I agree. I agree. So much so that the first time I ever watched that, my God, she would have made an excellent companion if they could have figured out something to justify her coming onto the target. Mm-hmm. But uh, that's, that's usual for how they do the base under siege stories. There's one reasonable person mm-hmm. on the base, yeah. one person with good sense and strategy. They're either consumed by ambition in such a way that they obstructive to the base, or they're just yes easily overwhelmed with the circumstances. And I absolutely love the fact that she keeps her co- under all circumstances to such a degree that even Slar notices it. <laughs> that even he is like, he, he really admires Mal, who, look, who looks at death unflinchingly, and then he compares her to Fuchsia. If they were all like that, we'd never be able to take over their plan. <laughs> Absolutely. And great. she's another one of the instances, another instance of putting all your eggs in one basket, where she apparently is the only one who has anything beyond a cursory understanding of how TMAT works. You know, yes, so she yes. must remain on Earth, right? But no yeah. one ever documented anything in a manual level... or Yes. <laughs> level one, level two, and level twelve technically. He's yeah. the only twelve. And that just is so silly. Although they deal do at the top at the beginning deal with the fact that the system is so automated that most of people don't even have to be there. That's they true. Just sort of there as a backup, but you'd think they'd be Prepared for functions and 
Yeah. And there for backup. If this is a world invasion, you obviously it's going to be centered in Britain. But does that mean that there's one? <laughs> yes, there's one. You know, head technician in London, who's the only way that knows how to work higher system. I also have to say, I, I really like the uh, candelabra type things that the seeds were put on for the tea mat. You know, so they could put a an air hose up to it. <laughs> well, also, and I, I imagine they were kind of difficult for the ice warrior costumes to manipulate. So. You had to have something yeah. that they could actually grab yeah. on. But yeah, it's like, this is our loving cup. <laughs> <laughs> Take our... Oh, God. No, don't even get me started. <laughs> I, I misheard that as like crown cup. Give me a moment to interpret. Take some mercy. Yeah. Well, yes. yeah, it's kind of a, something that takes oxygen out of the air. So yeah. anyway. All right. So anything else we want to address? Have we kind of plundered the depths of this particular book? More or less. In that case, as we always do, let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers, then follow up with our own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book, or you simply have a question about it, simply read the book, write a comment, or review in our new Goodreads group, that's not new anymore, by the deadline, so that we have a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves, you may just have your review read out loud here. The average rating for this story out of 5 stars is 3.52, about four-tenths of a point higher than the Crotons. The reviews of the story, on the other hand, are not quite so positive, but they're all remarkably short. Our old friend Stormhawk gives it three stars and says, Oh, for the simpler days of Who, when villains had remarkably simple vulnerabilities. These older stories were more action-driven, but still managed to throw in a psychological insight or two. No disrespect intended, but I am looking forward to running out of Trouton stories. Yeah, me too. Julian White also gives it three stars, saying, One of the more engaged of Dick's novelizations perhaps because he rewrote some of the original scripts script editor. Whatever the reason, the story unfolds smoothly, the regular cast, second Doctor is wonderful, of course, are well portrayed, and the guest cast and villains are also somewhat more three-dimensional than sometimes happens. One overly quick rocket trip to the moon with only three days' oxygen supply passes almost without notice, and I don't recall thinking it was too fast when I saw the story. Perhaps the episodic format smoothed out that wrinkle an enjoyable read. Nicholas White usually writes reviews that are so long I can't quote them, but this is his review of the book in its entirety, without any stars. For once, I felt Dix was trying a bit harder here, with a certain amount of characterization and backstory for the admittedly somewhat implausible future Earth society and the hierarchy in charge of the team at. The Doctor gets really trigger-happy with his wholesale slaughter of the Ice Warriors at the end. One visual that I'm happy to lose is the Ice Warrior Slar, who reminds me too much of Rick Moranis as Dark Helmet in Spaceballs. And finally, Anton Misfood gives it two stars on the shortest review so far. Not bad. Yeah. Expected to be devastating. You would think so, wouldn't you? So, Skip, we're going to let you go first. Um, I would give it like three out of five. Because, like I said, it's... It's a nice, briskly paced book. I liked how Dick's kind of added to the TV story. You know, as we were talking about earlier, you know, the the, the office politics, etc. Just you know, 
little bits here and there to just flesh things out a little bit more than the TV show ever did. And uh, I don't know. I kind of like the doctor being a badass Terminator character going around killing the baddies. <laughs> well, especially the Troughton doctor who you'd never expect. True. If he's, you know, I, I suppose out of all of them, he'd like be the last one you'd figure would do, do that. Well, Allison, how many would you give it out of five? At this point, the microphone cut out again and didn't record almost anything that Allison said. But she did give it two stars, which she said probably sounded harsh, but she'd gotten very sick of base under siege stories. And while this particular story had some interesting things going for it, it seemed like a return to the sort of stories that we'd already gotten very sick of, especially since so many of the Troughton stories from the previous season were all based under siege, and it seemed like we had finally left them behind, and now we were back to this one, so that's why her rating was so low. And we had Dalton, who was not actually present for the recording, but he did record this for us to let us know how he felt about the book. Hey everybody, Dalton here. Just wanted to give some thoughts on The Seeds of Death since I was not able to record with everybody else. I did really like this book. I liked a lot of the action elements. There was some good comedy in this book. Tony gave us a copy that did not have the cover on it, so it was a little bit of a surprise to me to see the Ice Warriors come back. There was a lot of Earth to the Moon, back to Earth, back to the Moon, that was a, a little monotonous, but overall, I feel like this book did carry along at a pretty good pace. Uh, there was a lot to go on for Jamie and for Zoe. I do feel like a lot of the secondary characters also were a really good supporting cast throughout the book. Um, Terrence Dix, again, is kind of doing what he does best and just kind of giving us the book like it is. Kind of layman's version of Doctor Who. Nothing spectacular, but not, not the worst thing that I've read. I did really kind of like the way that everything was wrapped up. There were multiple elements that the team had to overcome and the way they worked together to solve all those problems really did uh, kind of quicken the pace and allow us to feel the kind of excitement and the, the energy put behind all of this. Um, so I think out of five stars, I would probably say about 3.5 for me. Um, it was good, fun read, adventure story. Um, nothing out of the ordinary, nothing superbly profound in this one. Pretty straightforward adventure book. As for me, I also give this book a 3.5 out of five stars. Most of the inconsistencies in the book, or rather the original story, are not fixed by Dix, but then you kind of have to assume that some of those inconsistencies are down to Dix anyway, because he wrote episodes three through six. That being said, this really is one of the better Dix novelizations, probably because he is working with his own source material, and this is the first time we're actually seeing that. <clears throat> Sorry, in story order. Um, that, and I've always liked this story. It's one of my favorite Troughton stories, uh, because it does go by at such a fast clip, especially when you're watching it non-episodically, that you really do excuse the mistakes in it, and you realize that it doesn't matter if the Ice Warriors plan is just crazy or the weird time dilation between events on Earth and events on the Moon and all of that. It just kind of carries you away with it, which is 
not necessarily the most glowing praise of any Doctor Who story or novelization, but it certainly is the case in this case. All righty. Terrific. Um, Skip, I'm going to ask you once again to tell us where we can find us. You can find Fiction Paradox at www.spreaker.com. That's S-P-R-E-A-K-E-R.com slash user. I'm sorry, slash show slash fiction dash paradox. And we're also on Twitter at Fiction Paradox Pod. Terrific. And of course, you'll email me that information and I'll put it up on episode so everyone can find this wonderful podcast well thank you guys and thank you fellow time travelers for giving us your valuable time especially with all of the recording errors in this episode we promise we will do better next time unfortunately next time we also get the space pirates so you may wish those uh, editing errors were there in the meantime if you liked what you've heard here like us on facebook at doctor who target book club podcast all the world with those spaces you can also visit our pristine Reddit, or nearly pristine Reddit, at reddit.com forward slash r forward slash dwtargetbc. Feel free to watch videos of our first 12 episodes. Give us a thumbs up or comment at YouTube at youtube.com forward slash user forward slash emperordalics forward slash videos. You can also find Emperor Daleks Commutes on that channel, in which I bitch at the camera while stuck in traffic on I-55. You can also follow us on Twitter at DWTargetBC or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice. If all else fails you, and it inevitably will, email us at DWTargetBC at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening, and again, we thank Skip for joining us. Thank you for having me. And thank you listeners very much for listening, and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. I'm sorry I'm going to have to re-record that because the cat has decided to <laughs> do the scratching post thing right Squeaky now. Squeaky toy rampage. Yeah, sorry about that. Give me one second, Skip. Um, Annie, take Kitty's collar off, would you? He's being a little shit. Well, that's what we're going to put at the end of the podcast. A giant shit, actually. A giant shit. Very large. Enormous shit. Okay. <laughs> Quite the ballast. Here we are.